This is Bonjour Chai, the moderate Mrs. Maisel edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we discuss Jews being played by non-Jews. We discuss Canada's diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, and the Toronto District School Board debates anti-Semitic materials. But first, how are you guys doing? I'm a little bit tense right now, folks. Um, I don't know if you heard the breaking news coming out of the Jewosphere right now, but there is officially a cream cheese shortage happening around the world, probably due to supply issues. They're calling it the schmear shortage right now as we speak. And bagel shops all the way from New York to Tel Aviv to Montreal, um, they're talking about cutting back. How, how are we going to feel with our bagel locks and cream cheese in the morning? Well, we need to promote some of that cream cheese, make a schmear campaign. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I haven't felt it. I, I, I mean, cream cheese is part of our life, but not like a huge part of our life. It's not like I always have some in the fridge. Um, yeah, but, me neither. But there's another crazy supply issue going on here in Quebec at the same time. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about this, but the SAQ is on strike. Um, but it's not the SAQ what? stores. Oh my God, this is bizarre. Well, it's not bizarre. It's just so like, ugh. the SAQ warehouse workers and distribution center workers are on strike which means that the stores oh, wow. are open but they basically look like soviet groceries there's like nothing on the shelves except for vodka that's <laughs> just, so weird i mean not nothing but like the stores are like getting more and more and more depleted and you just cannot find stuff in in stores on a regular basis it's just I had to go yesterday because I have a cocktail workshop coming up next week and I was running low on stuff. I was running low on wine. Um, I drove from Montreal to Hawkesbury just so I can go to the LCBO. Um, and I went literally for half an hour, picked up That's wild. two cases of stuff and then came right back because the SAQ uh, workers are holding the entire province hostage and they know that it's the month of holidays and everybody wants to drink and there's nothing around. And Honestly, that's um, kind of hilarious in some ways that killing <laughs> holidays me. are coming up and there's nothing to buy. We won't be able to get our wine. We won't be able to get our vodka. We won't be able to get our cream cheese. Um, I know. What's a Jew to Unreal. do? Cornflakes. Did you hear about this? There's a cornflakes no. shortage. Part of it is because Kellogg's is on strike, but there's also the whole supply chain issues. This, like, I can't find a box of cornflakes in this city. It's Things are just falling apart. I know what we need to do. We need to make our own wine and squash it. I love Lucy style at home in big vats. Um, we need to make our own cream cheese. We all should go live on a commune and get some cows. I think we're going to solve the world. Alana people. has a new idea for a Moisha house because she hasn't been to enough of them. <laughs> I'll tell you, there is not, there is no shortage of oil from Alberta that we would desperately love to send to you, Quebec, if if you receive it with open arms. And if we light it, it will last eight times as long. I was just thinking about Hanukkah. There you go. Calgary can solve, <laughs> can save the Hanukkah story of 2021, cream cheese edition. with a topic brought up in our Slack channel this week. Uh, listener Michael B. brought up the issue of non-Jews playing Jewish characters in movies and on TV. So I know the issue was brought up in the past. Um, tangentially, let's dive right in. What do you guys think? You're the actors. 
uh, should, for example, the, the new season of Mrs. Maisel was just teased on TV, should Mrs. Maisel be played by a Jewish actor? And by extension... David, I'll let you start this time. Oh, you're so kind. Thank Go you. ahead, by extension. <laughs> um, look, Before I rant everyone's ears off. Yeah, for sure. So here's the thing. Alana and I are both actors, and we have both... I believe we both played Jewish and non-Jewish characters in the past, both on screen and on theater as well. So... I've thought about this a lot over my career. There's been a lot of talk about representation in the arts and appropriate representation of who should be playing these characters um, on stage and in screen. Look, overall, I really fundamentally feel that it does not matter. I, as a Jew, would love to get roles, right? When I am competing and going up against other parts, I would love to get every role possible. I know that is not a reality in the world that we are in. I have audition for Jewish roles in the past. I have not gotten them. Non-Jews in the past have gotten them as well too. And that is okay. As long as you do your homework, as long as you do your research in advance and you give your character the appropriate respect that it deserves, I really fundamentally don't believe we should be putting more people into boxes uh, based on the background. Alana, what do you think about that? Okay. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, First off, I want to bring up an old episode of Bonjour Chai, the Bite Size Bonjour interview with Aviva Armour Ostroff that I did back um, in May, where she brought up a really interesting point that I hadn't thought about before. She said that for her, and she's a a Jewish director and actor um, on screen and on stage, where it becomes a problem is when the Judaism is integral to the storyline. So she said she has no problem casting a non-Jew as a Jewish character if it's like, the Jewish girl working at the flower shop or something where it's like the story is about her working at the flower shop and she just happens to be Jewish as opposed to a story about trauma and resilience or like the Holocaust or something where the person has to actually draw from a lived experience. And she said in that case, she would prioritize casting a Jew. And I thought that was really interesting because in my perspective, and I have played many other like religions myself, but I see being Jewish as an ethno religion. And so for me, that's where the line is crossed because we're now living in this reality where we're talking so much about diversity and inclusion and representation and Jews are constantly being left out of this. So if we're saying, okay, um, a Chinese person shouldn't be playing a Korean person, then why should it be, why should uh, a white passing person play like an Ashkenazi? And also, how do you define who looks quote unquote Jewish? Because I think that perpetuates these stereotypes because then people are saying, oh, this guy has a big nose, he'll play the Jew. And I see that happening a lot. In the, t- in the case of Mrs. Maisel, I don't think that she comes across Jewish at all. I think she's a great actor. I actually love the show, but. She's like Kate Spade's cousin. She's the whitest of whites that they could have cast as this role. <laughs> yes. Is that how you find the whitest of whites, Kate Spade's cousin? She's, she's a was. But Alana, aren't you, Alana, aren't you <laughs> the love child of Kate Spade and David Spade? Alana, aren't you a little worried that if we start having these discussions that, you know, only Jews should play Jewish roles, then we are putting ourselves in a box to sort of say, great, you play all the Jewish roles you want, but you ain't playing non-Jewish roles but in the that's, future. But that's what begs the bigger question is how do you define Judaism? Because if you're basing it just off of a religion, you, so first of all, I personally do not think it's ethical for me to play a different race. And I know that there's a lot of debate around how do you define Judaism? Like people don't like to use the word race all the time because it 
denotes like a Nazi way of looking at things, but it is an ethnicity. Like if you did a DNA test, my grandfather did his DNA test and got 100% Ashkenazi Jew. I would not play a character from a place that I'm not from. Pure blood. Like we're at a point now. I would play a different so religion. You would play a Sephardic Jew. That's so you where play a that's where it Jew. gets complicated. That go ahead. But I've even heard this argument go beyond. I've even I've heard it go beyond the pale line where it's like I got into an argument with an actor once who said only English people should play Englishmen, only French people should play Frenchmen, only Germans. And I, I think really, there's a difference, and well, I'll tell th- you why. I think there's a difference too. I just think this argument can go so beyond that we are only ever playing our exact upbringing, our exact background that only David can play a Montreal Jew forever and ever. And I no, think that's wrong. I, I don't think, think that's what it is. No, I, I don't think that's what it is because there's a difference between playing... Sorry, Avi, I feel like you have something to say. But I, no, I have... Go ahead. Okay. So I think there's a huge difference. I'm not saying you should only play yourself. I think there's one thing for me to play um, a Christian or an American or a person from a place that doesn't have a, a history of oppression. I think that's where it becomes really difficult. And I learned a lot about this. I, I took uh, part in the Black Theater Workshop Mentorship Program years ago. And learned a lot about um, a POC's uh, experience of representation and why it's important for someone who is black to tell their own story as opposed to someone in blackface, which is obviously wrong for so many reasons. But I think that it, Sarah Silverman, she calls it Jewface when they have, when uh, American media uses people who are not Jewish to play Jewish roles. And I think that there's something to that. And yes, we might not be a visible minority for. Ashkenazi Jews, but there are a lot of different kinds of Jews. And I think that we, we run at the risk of misrepresenting our stories. And I just listened to an episode of Unorthodox yesterday, their most recent episode, where they interview uh, an actor who is both indigenous and Jewish from the show um, Reservoir. Uh, what's it called again? Reservoir Dogs. Excellent show. Such a good show. So they br- they brought her on and she talked about how it's so important now in the indigenous community for them to get the tribes right because they're so different. And it's the same thing as a Jew. And she was saying, I'm so glad that now people are stepping up to have Jewish representation. But I was thinking, are we? Because I'm not seeing that happening. And I think that as Jews, we can play all different kinds of things. But I I wouldn't play like... Now, I would not feel comfortable playing like a Muslim woman from like an Arab country, even if I do have like an olive tone skin. Whereas 10 years ago when I was in theater school, I did actually play a character like that in the Laramie Project. And then when I was in the mentorship program at Black Theater Workshop, I did the monologue and they were like, Ilana, take off the hijab. Like, what are you doing? You are not from wherever place I was representing. And in that moment, I was like, oh, I guess I never thought about this before. This was many years ago before this became a a wider conversation. And I think it should be the same. Like, why should a white person who comes from a very privileged background play a character who's going through something that they they just will not be able to bring authenticity to no matter how much research that they do? So if it's integral to the story, so how would you feel if a casting director told you, listen, um, you know, Christianity is an integral part of this person's, um, uh, you know, f- stage presence and, and what their story is. And I, you know, b- if you convert it to Christianity, you can get this job. That'd be awesome. But but because you're Jewish and you don't really get what it means to be saved by Jesus, we can't give you this role. I mean, I think that would be up to them more than up to me. I just think it's different. But, but how would it make you feel as you wouldn't go to them and say, listen, I think I can do the research and I can try to like feel what it's like to be a religious individual. I mean, I know that I could do it. But the thing is, if that's what their perspective was, I would respect it, honestly, because I would I would think about my own perspective. Do you think do you think that people of color should play like white individuals if they could, if they could or represent those stories? 
represent those stories. You think stories. that that would be an appropriate thing to do? Ah, uh, but how can you compare that? Because, because there is, there is a movement a lot. What's that? No, I'm saying suppose that there was, there was this character and this character was definitely white. Yeah. And a person of color said, I think I can do this story justice. But then the thing is, is because they're a visible minority by proxy of what they look like being on screen, it wouldn't be a story about a white person, be a story of a person of color. But it's still, a, if it's a historical person, it could be a white person. Oh, you're yeah, so saying playing, like revamping right? history, like what they've done on Hamilton or things like that. Hamilton, sure. I think it's different yeah, because... where they're taking it and they're... Sub- sure, but those people weren't <laughs> oppressed. Like white people historically are the ones that have been the oppressors. So I don't think it's the same to compare apples and oranges. And I think that's where the problem is, is having people of privilege play people of an oppressed Yeah, group. but every, you know... Ilana, I've heard you say this a lot in the show in the past, right, where every oppressor is also oppressed or every oppressed person is also an oppressor, that there's always an other. Sure. Right? When it comes to the Jewish, when it comes to things that go on in Israel, right? Sure. So is it possible to say that Alexander Hamilton was both an oppressor and one that was oppressed um, by England, right? And therefore, maybe a black individual can go and say, I think I can play this story right, give this story justice, because I want to, you know, play with this. I want to think about this. Sure. I want to, to deal with the character that's going sure. on. Here. I mean, I haven't... Right, so... I th- I, there's so much nuance here. It's like... So for yeah. a, a Middle Eastern Jewish woman to go and play somebody with a hijab and to go and say, I too know what it's like to be an other in society, and I'm not saying that I am this woman, right. but I'm saying that I can bring something unique to this story that has some similarities that I think that I can actually like, you know, uh, you know, I can learn from and I can teach others by my being this character. Sure, but I think there's a difference between a Middle Eastern woman playing a woman with a hijab as opposed to a white privileged woman. A Middle Eastern Jewish woman. Okay, sure. A but then Eastern what Jewish about woman? the actor who plays Mrs. Maisel? What does she bring to the role other than just being a good actor? I am not an actor, but I think she that might, that is... She might pop- bring her, her full background I was going to say, it. I thought that that is the exact qualification that you have to bring to a, to a character, is that your very totality as a great actor is what's supposed to be on yes, stage. It's supposed but to the, be on screen, whatever it might be. But the reality that we're living in is that there's all these conversations, and David, I'm sure that you know, you know this from being in the industry that we're in, about representation and why are Jews not included in that. To me, it's like if nobody was talking about this and all of us were playing everything, that's a different story. That's not the reality that we live in. And from my perspective, I think that what we all want in this fight for representation is not for it to become lopsided where it's like only people of color are being cast as leads and stuff like that. Like I think the goal that most people have is that eventually it becomes balanced because people are not putting their... Um, biases when they're casting and they're not saying, okay, um, I'm just going to cast this and it just happens to all be a white cast like they would have done 10, 20 years ago. Eventually things will become more balanced and everyone will have the chance to play all kinds of roles. But we do not live in that reality. So right now, if we're trying to bring oppressed stories to the forefront, we need to do them right. We certainly don't. And Alana, I will give you the point where, you know, I do believe that Jews are left out of the conversation a lot of times in the arts when we talk about, you know, oppression, when we talk about representation, it always seems that Jews fall by the wayside. We need to, you know, focus a light on these individuals. Oh, but as soon as Jews comes up, well, aren't they part of a privileged class is, is the question that really comes out again and again. And aren't they really de facto white? Absolutely, Alan, I'll give you that. But my difference is, look, I think we have to examine it. Are we disappointed that we don't get roles because we're also actors that want to play these roles too? Or it's the same thing. You know, I was in a show with um, a Jewish person 
who was playing a Jewish character. But this Jewish individual actor knew really next to nothing about Judaism. And I'm questioning, is this person really bringing all their backgrounds to it when they can't even get some of the terminology correct? When they sort of said, well, this was, this is my actual. This happens on shows too, though. Right. So it's just like, well, then what are you bringing to the table if you actually are legitimately a Jew by birth, but yet you know next to nothing? I would rather have someone who knows all about Judaism, who is not a Jew and says, I actually understand these things. I can bring a lot of uh, concrete uh, emotions and feelings to this because I get it as opposed to someone who's like, well, I'm born it, but it means next to nothing to me. You bring up an interesting point, to be honest, because now that I'm thinking about it, something that I've brought up in the past, but I've never been able to put words onto is when I watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, for some reason, Tony Shalhoub never really bothered me. And he is not Jewish. And the way that I always pinned it in my head was, well, he's from another minority group. So I feel like he brings that reality from knowing what it's like to be from a minority group into the role. The amount of times that the actor who I just plays... think he's a good actor. Yes, I'm getting to that. Right. I yes. think that a good actor, even if they were white, was, would okay. figure out the place where they are a minority right. and say, I'm going to bring this to the table so, and I'm going to show this in the character. Here's the problem. And I'm going to just bring up two more things and then and then I've made my case. Because to be honest, what you're, no, what you're saying is infiltrating for me and it's making me reflect on, on my view. Is that the difference is Tony Shalhoub clearly did his homework. But the actor who's playing the main character, Rachel Brosnahan, that's her name, right? I think so. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. She has mispronounced so many Jewish terms on that show that it like, and I love the show and I think she's, a, I think she's a good actor, but I don't think she's done her homework because I don't buy it. I just, there, there's so many so maybe times. Maybe you should blame the dialect coach. Or the actor not for her. not, okay, sure. Maybe it's a dialect coach, but it's like, if you're going to be telling a Jewish story, you better do it right because a Jew will pick up on the problems. And then there's the issue of it falling into stereotypes. And it's like, are you, you know, imitating this accent because you think this is what a Jew sounds like or this is how a Jew's behavior is like? Because I've been in acting classes where I've heard teachers say, like, I want you to be a bit more Jewy. I've literally heard teachers say that before. And it was two non-Jewish actors. And they were, like, really uncomfortable when the teacher said that. And they were like, what do you mean? And the teacher's like, you know, like, louder, brasher, more New York Woody Allen. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm so uncomfortable. This shit happens. Wait, that came up in the Slack channel this week also about, like, whether or not Jewy is a, is a term that we think should be offensive, like right. one of our 18 words or not. Yeah. Um, you know, a... I want to pivot in a separate direction, but it's still related to this, um, you know, because the other thing that's coming up this week is that people are calling or not people aren't calling, but there is already rumbling about the problems with Steven Spielberg redoing uh, West Side Story. Um, and and that he is, you know, him and Tony Kushner, who are both Jews, are telling a story now that shouldn't necessarily be told by anybody else but um, by Latinos and that the um, and that the story in and of itself is problematic um, West Side Story in total, right? And maybe we shouldn't be doing it anymore, um, right? And, and nobody ever stops to say, you know what, maybe Merchants of Venice, Merchant of Venice is problematic and we should never perform it anymore because yeah. it's considered a great work of art. Um, West Side Story is by now a great work of art and people are not going to go, people, you know, this question is coming up. Yeah. And, you know, I think this really intersects into all of this. Look, in in, in terms of the West I, I I believe you know we're, we're trying to make a story out of nothing with the West Side Story with West Side Story in a sense I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater I think this is a wonderful musical it's it's been so important in the you know in the canon of musical theater itself um, I believe you know people are just trying to stir some stuff up but there are legit points in sort of saying these are all, what was it four or five Jews who all created the story who had no background who had never met a Puerto Rican in their lives when you know Sonberg sort of said well I I, I have no idea what it was like. 
Um, and they've even made some changes when they revised it on Broadway, my understanding too. They changed some of the lyrics. They, they, they put Spanish into it itself. I think there's a legit argument to be made to sort of say, these were the stereotypes created in the past about these communities. But I would never want to get rid of this story, which I find beautiful. I don't know. the. Re I haven't done the research myself, so I can only uh, trust the person who told me this. But weirdly, West Side Story came up the other day and someone told me that the original version was actually about Jews versus Catholics. And then they decided to make it about Puerto Ricans, mm -hmm. which is really, really interesting. It's supposed to be East Side Story, actually. Yes. Really? Yeah. Um, but they thought that the Irish Jewish thing was a little too like on the head on the nose go on the, yeah, yeah on the nose that's what I meant sorry on the head <laughs> hit the nail on the head um, yeah so you're right but again so a great story is a great story so David do you think Merchant of Venice should be cancelled absolutely not never I think it's actually one of the best Shakespeare plays um, and I will and I've had non-Jews who have argued with me in theater school saying, oh, it's very problematic play. I don't feel comfortable seeing it or doing it. And I'd be like, I actually think it it has great representation. It's the first time in English theater where the Jew is portrayed as multifaceted. And we can have characters who are Jewish who behave badly, which really sort of says you are, you are a full fleshed out character as opposed to, what was it, The Jew of Malta by Christopher Marlowe, who just made the Jew... Yeah. Uh, totally evil and without any sympathy. I actually think Shylock has a lot of sympathy. He's a bad person. That doesn't mean Jews are bad. Yeah, and I I think that what it shows is that there are you don't have to be um, of a certain culture in order to tell a great story of that culture, right? It certainly helps. Um, it often helps. It's probably a you know there are great stories that are told from within a culture because you write what you know. But Steven Spielberg thinks that he can tell this story properly. Tony Kushner thinks that they can tell this story properly, and I think that they. I haven't seen it yet. Um, I don't know, but I've heard good things. I haven't gone, uh, not because I don't go to the movies. I just don't go to the movies because I have kids. It's just whatever, and it's only in the theaters now. But um, you know. I think that there are many times when Jews have told the stories of non-Jews. I think there are times when non-Jews have told the stories of Jews, whether in print or in film. Um, and as directors, that is your job, is to be able to tell a great story. Um, and I have no problem assuming that Steven Spielberg is going to tell a great story using this, this way. And I think if the actor is just one of the tools in this palette, or the actor is themselves telling a story of a character on stage or on screen, then we don't have to stop and ask ourselves, right. is this person allowed to tell this story or not? Um, it's mainly much more becomes, you know, did this person do a good job of telling the story? And I think that the problem that people have is when when the person that is playing the non-Jew, um, the person that is playing the Jewish person who is non-Jewish, uh, the, the times that these things get complained about is when, like you said, uh, David, when the story isn't being told properly. Right. Mm -hmm. When it's just a poor story. And it's so it's I think it's an acting problem or a storytelling problem rather yeah. than the a representation problem. I'll just finish off by saying, you know, when I I'm working on a play, too, and some of the characters are non-Jews, you know, we're talking about um, I have a character who's, you know, Mizrahi. I am not Mizrahi. I need to do the research. I also need to invite people on board to lend me their ears to do a bit further research and to let them know what am I missing here? What do you find is important that really is sort of saying you're going down mm -hmm. the wrong pathway? I think whether it's Spielberg or myself or Alana or any other artists, we need to admit where we are lacking information, where we don't understand the background and where we want to know a bit more, do the homework and also pay those people 
uh, to help us get through these things. Yeah, no, I think you both bring up really good points. I think for me, when I see a show that is falling flat Jewishly, it's because, and then I, I look at the credits, if there's not a Jewish writer or a Jewish director or Jewish actors at all involved in the project, I don't think those people should be telling those stories. There needs to be at least someone bringing authenticity to it or a consultant or something at the very least, because I was also just thinking, and I, I, I won't go on for much longer, but the show Transparent, um, written by a Jew, about a Jewish family, two of the actors in the family, I don't know if you've seen the show, it's excellent, um, are, are, not, yes. are not Jewish. And it didn't bother me as much because the show was primarily casted, like primarily casted Jews and was written by a Jew and you could feel the neshama of, of the story. So I think if you can do as much homework as you possibly can and there's at least a decent amount of higher ups on your team who are bringing authentic representation, there are times where maybe I could let yeah, it fly. Speaking of transparent, I think that uh, rabbis are often, often, often the worst representations of Jews on, on film. They're the most cliched, um, and, and rabbis should only be played by other rabbis, I think. Um, and if you're a rabbi actor, I think you should get every possible job um, in Hollywood relating to rabbis, because can, can we think of a single good representation of a rabbi on screen that was like authentic and felt good it didn't feel like ham-fisted and like super cliched well this is what i loved about transparence rabbi rabbi rachel i love her i want her to be my rabbi Catherine hahn is basically like the one that plays no all she's the pretty great even though she she's also not a jew which i didn't realize until recently today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor atelier lou bijouterie in montreal quebec Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. So um, let's switch gears a little bit here, Um, although it's about representation as well. Um, We... Uh, this week, the uh, Canada has joined a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics. Um, you know, Trudeau said that we are extremely concerned by the repeated human rights violations within the Chinese government. Uh, I don't think the decision of, by Canada or by many other countries to choose not to send diplomatic representation to the Beijing Olympics and the Paralympics is going to come as a surprise to China. We've been very clear over the past many years of our deep concerns around human rights violations. Uh, meanwhile, Israel is not joining this boycott, right? In one interview, somebody, one of the uh, members, I think it was the former ministry, called this boycott bizarre. They're like, what kind of, you know, boycott is this yeah. where you send dip- diplomats? You don't send diplomats, but you'll send your athletes. Um, and... This is likely because Israel's relationship with China is much more complicated, right? There's so many infrastructure projects that China is involved with in uh, in Israel, and Israel and China have a very different relationship than Canada and China, um, who are going through like a messy breakup right now. Um, and so, you know, this led me to start thinking about what is the nature of uh, our, I wouldn't say our allegiances, but when we are living in a country that seems to be doing the right thing and feel like we are closely aligned with another country that is not doing the right thing, um, what do we do? How do we feel? How do we align ourselves? How do we feel we are represented? Look, I I supported what Canada is doing in terms of this boycott. I believe it's what they can do. Um, I think it would hurt a lot of athletes in the long run to sort of say, you're not going, you've been training this for four, eight, 12 years, and all of a sudden... Well, this isn't can't... an athletic, this is not an athlete's boycott. No, I know it's not. Right, they know very well that by this point that it's not fair to the athletes um, to make them boycott. This is just diplomatically, right? They don't send 
um, high-level diplomats and other representatives from the countries um, representing, yeah, you know, which I hear and the, I really, I really fundamentally support because I think in the years to come, China will become more and more aggressive um, to different countries like Taiwan. I think it's the thing that we have to do and we have to come together partially as like a Western block with New Zealand, with Australia, England, the United States to sort of say, we will not take kindly to what you're doing and, and taking these actions. And I think there is a lot for China to answer for in a sense. So in terms of as a Jew and as a Canadian Jew, where do your loyalties lie? I think this, you know, this is the uncomfortable question of dual loyalties that a lot of Jews are are, are being brought up to sort of say, well, are you with Israel? Or are you with Canada? Or are you with the United States? I think it's true. Israel has a lot of complicated stuff going on as China is building more and more investments in non-Western parties around the world. So they're going to do their thing. They're going to say, this is bizarre. We are going to go our way and sort of say we, we need to stand up and, and not allow this to become another, what is it, sports washing Olympics? I have a question. I'm curious. I mean, I know all your stances generally on the conflict in the Middle East. Maybe the listeners are still learning David's. But um, what would happen, let's say, if this were to take place in Israel, right? Because a lot of people might view this exact situation as synonymous with what's going on in their minds with the Palestinians in Israel. And they might say, this is our boycott. We're not going to go to the Olympics and we're not even going to send our athletes. To be honest, I wouldn't even be surprised if it went that far. So what would you say that? Um, first of all, I mean, no countries want the Olympics anymore, summer or winter. They're just hugely like annoying and silly and dumb to put on as far as games go. And I think that they should rethink the nature of cities hosting it or countries hosting it. Um, but th even that right aside, here. I'm pretty sure that Israel is pretty smart um, in that they don't even want to, even if they thought that the Olympics would be a great idea for Israel in terms of sport and tourism, stuff like that, um, they know that that's probably not a great idea and they are not um, looking to get the Olympics at this point anytime soon because something like this inevitably will happen um so yeah so yeah, it's kind of sure. a moot point but you're 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 bringing this up and, and you're 100 right i think that the nature of boycotts is that you feel good when you're on one side of them and when the other side when you're on the other side of it you're like this isn't fair why are you doing this we are nice people um we see this all the time with all the BDS, with all the, you know, and, and that is literally a boycott, yeah. you know, and sanctions, divest and sanctions um, going towards Israel. Um, we may not like it. We may talk about it. Um, it's a problem. Um, but when you feel like you're on something's side, right, then it's great. And Israel clearly wants to stay yeah. out of this one. I'm curious just to play devil's advocate, like in the, in the Israel-Palestinian conflict side of things, like we know our backstory and we know why, you know, even if it's complicated and we can recognize that there are issues, why one would still stand up for the state. But is there is there even a legit argument on the other side of this problem when it comes to the boycott at the Olympics? One billion Chinese think so. In any way? Like are people trying... The IOC came out and said, we, we're not a political organization. We don't take sides in this. We're just going to wipe, wipe our hands. And this is all about sports. And, and one might go and say that there's a billion, there's a billion Chinese that are on the side of the Chinese government and they're, you know, uh, what they're doing. And I, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I'm sure... Even if it's... I was going to say even if it's a genocide. No, I'm saying that there's probably many people that are are in their minds think that that what's going on is the 
the right thing to be doing against the, the Uyghurs, let's say, right? It's not just a small, tiny minority of, you know, Chinese high-level officials that are saying, you know what, we don't like those Uyghurs. We are going to put them in camps and we are going to do bad things to them. It's not about that, right? You clearly have many people that believe that what's either they're not being told what's going on and I should we should get informed and we should maybe do a whole episode on the Jewish response to the yeah. Uyghurs, um, but um, to the Uyghur genocide. Um, but at the end of the day, I am sure, rightly or wrongly, there are many, many, many people that believe that what China is doing to the Uyghurs is a good thing. I, I may not agree with and, it. And the same thing, the same thing for, for Tibet as well, too, is the argument. We, you know, Tibet doesn't get uh, enough coverage at all, but it's been this way for, for many j- decades in a sense. We're right now... Um, they're being sent to like um, new schools, almost like residential schools in a sense, where they're being taught uh, Mandarin as opposed to their native language itself. They're being re-educated. It's the same thing. And and t- Tibet gets very far right. little attention too. Stop me if you don't want to talk more about the Middle East. But I just honestly, what keeps running through my mind is just that people might look at Jews and say, wow, so you're standing up for this cause, but you're not standing up for the one that's happening in your country and you know so these are the things that run through my mind because to me I, I do see a difference and and maybe that's a fault in my own education and I you know I'm not a heart I'm not a hardcore right winger when it comes to Israel you know I do see a lot of fault and I think that there are gaps and I think we do overlook things but at the same time I think that we actually do have pretty legit reasons careful you're gonna run into the wrath of the uh, the pro the elders of Zion oh, are gonna get behind you there and uh... <laughs> Alana I think you're absolutely well, maybe correct. Jesus will too but <laughs> I think you really are. You're hitting on a point where I think this is becoming uncomfortable within the Jewish community where they sort of say, oh, if I come out and support this boycott of this particular country, someone is going to say, oh, now you're you're being hypocritical because you want to ignore human rights violations yeah. in the West Bank and Gaza Strip itself. So I think a lot of Jews are like, how do I play this every time? Because my focus is always coming back to Israel and the Palestinian territories itself. And I think this is going to come again and again and again throughout the Jewish community. Uh, in the years and decades to come. And it's just going to make it more difficult and challenging to address these issues where the Jewish community wants to keep out and keep quiet. And in a sense, this is what Israel is doing right now at the time. Yeah, I mean, the, the question then that, that, that would end all questions on this one is if the BDS movement was a more moderate movement, right, that was not seeking the, according to some people, the complete eradication, right, of of the of the Jewish people in in order to have a totally free and Palestine, uh, what's the line that they say from the river to the sea? Um, I'm not advocating this stuff, but I'm saying like this is if if it was if it was more moderate than that, if it was just we want to put boycotts on Israel because what they're doing is not right, and uh, we have to figure out what this two state solution is going to look like, and that that was at the center of the BDS movement. Do you think that it would have a lot more acceptance? Maybe. I mean, maybe not not in our community because I feel like people get triggered so so much. Like even the Ben and Jerry's thing. It, it's it's such a tricky. A thing. lot of them, the Ben and Jerry's thing erupted the community on Facebook. That's just Facebook, yeah. though. People get a. But there are sure there are Jews both within Israel and abroad that sort of say, "I'm in favor of a partial boycott. I will not buy anything or support anything from the settlements itself. Right. I won't buy any wine from the settlements. I won't, you know, any products or anything like that." And they say, "This is my boycott, and this is what I want to support itself." I think the problem is anytime BDS comes out, it becomes such a whirlwind of, oh my God, who are these people? What's going on? And then someone says something so 
so stupid, right? It's always like you'll always find an anti-Semite in the BDS community, but you will also find Jews within the BDS community too, who sort of says, I believe in Israel's right to live free and safe, but I do not believe that. That also means that they need to also occupy and oppress another people at the same time too. So the thing is, it just goes back and forth and we never make headway on these issues. I want to switch gears here for a second um, because this directly intersects with uh, a story that has been simmering all week uh, that broke last night. Uh, I don't want to get too much into the details. It broke. It came to a big head, although I'm sure that this is not the end of this story. I don't know if you heard about this. Um, Back in May, uh, there is a student equity advisor for the Toronto District School Board by the name of Javier Davila. Javier Davila um, started distributing teaching materials that were linked to the PFLP, the People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine. One of the trustees of the Toronto District School Board, henceforth we'll call it the TDSB, um, took to social media and started complaining about the materials. And she said that she was deeply disturbed um, that she discovered that virulently anti-Israel and even anti-Semitic materials were distributed by the TDSB teachers through an opt-in list by a TDSB employee, right? Um, Who do you think was the subject of an investigation by the integrity commissioner of the TDSB? Was it the, you know, well, AB, was it Javier Davila, the student equity advisor who distributed this material? Or was this Alexandra Lulka who um, actually went and complained about this material? I'm going to go with B. I'll give you the answer. It was B. That's right. And when the report was released this week, which caused the story to come up all over again, it did note, it it did note, to be fair, that um, the material promoted terrorism. um, But then it criticized her, right? Madam Lolka, Mrs. Lolka, uh, for failing to note the positive aspects of the material. Interesting. Yeah, bonkers. So uh, last night, the TDSB uh, did vote against censuring her, to be fair. Uh, you can hear more about the meeting and the whole story. There's a lot of audio on our uh, sister podcast, The CJN Daily, with Ellen Bessner. Um, but this, to me, is what happens when we don't promote moderate voices within the community. Right. When suppose public schools do want to teach both sides of the Middle East conflict, right, the only material that they're finding is extremist material um, and that that's a problem and that we need more moderate voices. Um, Where do you find your moderate voices? I'm curious, like, because I'm finding that they're less and less both on the right and on the left. I agree. Agree with what exactly? No, I agree that things are becoming so extreme that it's hard to find any middle ground. And I find myself wanting to just disappear and not engage in conversations with a wider community because there's everything is so extreme on either side. I'm too afraid to voice anything because people will misinterpret or say that I'm leaning one way or the other where there usually is two sides. I mean, there always is two sides to a story. So how do you... How well, do, how do not we... really. There was no two sides in Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay, <laughs> when, sure. When Trump condemned problems sure. on both sides. Sure, sure. But... You, you know what I mean? There were I, no two sides of the Holocaust either, uh, just just for the record. Okay. I take back what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that <laughs> I wasn't thinking about those kind of examples. I was thinking more about the conflict in the Middle East, for example. But I think well, it's to hard. some people, that's, that's the Holocaust. That's true. That's true. Um, I would love to hear more of both of your thoughts on this. Can you expand, Avi or David? I think... Um... A lot of the Jewish institutions and Jewish schools do a disservice to the students where they really are only... T- Look, when I went up, when I was in Bialik, only times we touched upon the Middle East was there are these bad Arabs. They want to hurt Jews. We need to stand strong. We need to stand united. That's really what I got by grade nine itself. So when I entered the real world, I knew very little. I had to go there and live there to really start to understand the nuance involved in it, right? 
I learned that, they, yes, there are bad Palestinians, just like there are bad Israelis, and there are good Palestinians, just like there are good Israelis who both want to come together and have a way of life. But I believe some of the bigger institutions within our community are sort of shutting down any type of nuance or any type of, of differences. I've, I've looked at J Street. I've attended a lot of the J Street conferences down in the States in the past where they have a tagline of pro-Israel, pro-peace. But even they are sort of lambasted by the right wing of APAC and sort of said they're anti-Israel. Yeah. Just because yeah. anytime, if I criticize the Canadian state, does that make me anti-Canadian? If I say I do not like what the Canadian government is doing or what the Alberta government is doing today, does that make me an anti-Albertan? You know what? Maybe to some Albertans, I, I would be considered an anti-Albertan. But the fact of the matter is we should have a right to criticize. We should have a right to condemn. That doesn't mean we want to see the dismantling of these states. That doesn't mean we want to um, tear down these things. It means we want to see them better. We want to raise them up in a sense. But for some people, that is not good enough. Now, in terms of this particular event, again, any time nowadays in our society that Palestine or Israel comes, it is a trigger point. It is a clash. I don't know rather than even giving there is no such thing as moderate voices for some people. Well, I would say, well, that's a very moderate, nuanced approach. Others are going to say that's so anti-Palestinian or that is so anti-Israel that you just get lost in the cacophony of noise. I wish there was a better way, Avi. I don't know if you have a great solution to that either. So um, I have a very good indicator for how to tell when a voice is a moderate voice. Right. If there are people from both sides of a debate that are sitting at the same table, that's a pretty good indicator of that being a moderate voice, right? Because people are willing to sit and talk to each other. They are right away going to be more moderate than anything else. If you go and say, I am not willing to talk to this group, I think that speaking to Palestinians legitimizes them and therefore um, gives credence to their movement, which is totally false. That is an extreme position. And that is a pretty good indicator that this person is going to promote only extremist positions. Um, same thing for the other side. So that's my way of like, here's obvious simple tip for finding out who's the moderates and who are not, right? You want to know who a moderate conservative is versus a moderate liberal, right? Figure out who are the conservatives that are actually talking to liberals and liberals who are actually talking to conservatives, right? And those are, those are the voices that you want to be listening to. Um, I think, though, that by extension, and that's the problem exactly here, is that as you both have very, you know, eloquently pointed out, there are not many spaces um, for moderate voices within the Jewish community. Notice that J Street exists in the U.S. and it has almost no analog um, for moderate in, in terms of the scope and the reach that it has um, within Canada. I think that um, there is J space, though. Yeah, but I'm saying how many people have heard about it versus how many people have heard of J Street um, in the States. So for lack of a, you know, right. I personally think that it is the major Jewish organizations that have successfully squashed so many moderate voices um, with this idea that like we have to show united front and that any sort of giving in to these types of voices, and the voices are slowly changing. I, I've had some back channel discussions with some organizations, which shall remain nameless, where I can see that this is starting to move in a different direction um, slowly because, you know, Jews take their time to change because that's just the nature of the Jewish community. Um, but those voices yeah. are effectively squashed by the majority who go and say, we have to present a united front. Israel needs our support more than ever. Saying anything for the other side get, takes away uh, 
support and takes away legitimacy and credibility from what the, the place where we have to go and support ourselves and that that is the problem and that that leads to the dearth of materials available um, that are moderate that can be taught to people that want to learn about this in a genuine real way. But Avi, who's bringing these voices to the table in a sense? Because someone could say, well, I brought moderate voices to the table. One is a Palestinian voice. The other is hypothetically independent Jewish voices. They're very moderate. Mm -hmm. Let's say someone someone might suggest that. And then the Jewish community will get upset and sort of says, that's not our version of a moderate voice. That's and my point. Gonna... That's exactly my point. Yeah. You're, you're, you're underlining what I'm saying. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Good. <laughs> There's... There's a really great article that maybe we can link in the show notes um, that I've sent to a lot of friends of mine, both Jewish and not Jewish. It's called Eight Tips for Reading About Israel by Maddie Friedman in a Sapir journal that came out around the time of the most recent conflict. Well, Canadian journal. It's the most objective um, news piece that I have read about deconstructing reading news around the conflict in the Middle East. And I just want to read out one passage where he brings up a few different questions you can ask yourself while reading media that relates to um, the Middle East. And the second one is, why are you telling me this? And I quote, is your source of information an observer whose job it is to explain things or an activist with a political plan? Being an activist is fine, but it's important to understand who's who. An activist doesn't need to tell you everything, just the things that will draw you to his point of view. To take examples from the Israeli context, groups such as Breaking the Silence or B'Tselem are activist groups, and so on the other side of the spectrum are groups like Stand With Us. Their material isn't meant primarily to explain what's going on, but to induce you to support a particular position. Contradictory information won't be included. Their role is like that of an attorney at a divorce trial. If you're representing the wife, your job isn't to offer a fair assessment of the husband. Your job is to savage his character in your client's interest and to get the judge on your side. So I think he brings up a really good point about thinking about who is telling you this and what is their goal? Is it to educate? Is it to inform? Or is it because they have a particular agenda or they're trying to change the world? And he also brings up a lot of other really great points. And one of them is that why are people talking so much about Israel, this one little country? There's so many things that are going on in the world, like what we talked about before with the boycott of the Olympics. There's so many other things. So the fact that this gets so nitpicked and people make it such a huge part of their activism, to me, is just absurd. Why, why Israel over so many places? And to me, it feeds either, depending on what side you're on, it could be feeding anti-Semitism, it could be feeding Islamophobia, it could be feeding you know, any any version or amalgamation of those two things. Yeah, so I can't tell you how many conversations I've had um, with people in the past, recent or not so recent, that are sitting there throwing these facts at me, right, that they get. And there are so many facts and so many organizations devoted to, like, showing you the 12 facts that show that Israel is right in this or that, the other. Um, and, and they may be absolutely right. And I tell them, you know, all of these facts may be completely right. But what's your point? Right, your point is that... Um, you know, Israel deserves to stay here. Does that mean that you have the right to show facts and the other side doesn't have the right to show facts? Right? Do, 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 if exactly. By you showing these facts and saying that Israel has this right to exist, all you're doing is creating legitimacy for another side to go and create another set of facts. It's, it's pointless for anybody that believes that ultimately we have to move towards peace and not towards conflict. So these organizations that, and, and these are exactly the types of organizations that I've been calling out, right, are that whose sole reason for existing is to pump out articles, right? Uh, the accuracy for reporting in the Middle East. You're an inaccurate source. This is inaccurate. That's inaccurate. This is wrong. That is wrong. This is anti-Israel bias, and this is anti-Israel bias. Every person that does that, 
right? Whether they call themselves honesty, honest reporting, or, or, or like I said, the committee, this was an organization for act, all of these types of organizations, all they're doing is saying, well, we get to do it on the other side also. And I can tell you that Israel isn't rosy perfect either. Right. And so if you're allowing one side to go and say that there's problems on the other side, that makes us right. Then the other side is going to go and say, well, there's problems on your side, too. And you don't like hearing those problems all at all. Right. Whoever you are on the right. And then you're just creating more and more walls and more barriers. Right. The moderate voices are the ones that say, I may be right, but it doesn't matter because you're a human and you're and I'm facing you and, and I have to deal with that. And I want to deal with the humanity that is at this table right, literal or figurative, um, and that that's the problem. The problem is all of these organizations on both sides that are like pointing fingers. You're wrong. I can show you. I have facts. No, 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 no. You were wrong. I have facts. I can show you this is a problem, right? And then if yeah. every organization is just sitting there and, and basing their their rightness based on facts, um, you know, the, the, the whole process breaks down. Um, and what happened this week is exactly that. I'll, I'll take it a step further and sort of say, you know, so much of the, our time and energy is spent on, well, this is what happened 2000 years ago. This is what happened 500 years ago. Did you know that this is what happened 80 years ago? This is why we're right because of what happened 45 years ago itself. And then we get into a whole history debate of, yeah, but you didn't hear about this side 45 years ago, as opposed to what is happening today, right now, and how do we move forward? How do we make sure that both Israeli and Palestinian kids are uh, safe to go to school in the morning and not get stabbed or not be attacked or anything like that. What are we doing today on the ground as opposed to going back 50 years into history and sort of says, because of this injustice that we suffered, you deserve to have injustice tomorrow. I like half agree with what you just said and then disagree with what you said before, because I do think it's important for us to know the history <laughs> on both sides, because I think it's really easy. Like I just learned about, I learned about the Nakba in the last year. I'd never learned about that in my Jewish education. And on the other side of things, I have a lot of non Jewish friends who have told me that they didn't know about so many things to do with the history of how Israel became a state and the British ruling over and how everything went in and Jews were exiled from our land and all that kind of stuff. So I think I agree with you that we do need to focus on the now because now is what's happening and we need to make sure that people are okay. But at the same time, if we erase history, I think that's what can perpetuate. Right. So it's like, well, you know, I find the history incredibly fascinating and I'm a news junkie and I'll, you know, read anything about the history itself. When we're sitting down for a Toronto school board meeting, I don't know if that's going to provide uh, information to sort of say, let's talk about the founding of the state of Israel and consequently the Nakba itself. We're we're never going to get to the point of what is going on today at the Toronto school board and why was this woman potentially what censored or or why was their material being passed around yeah history is not ultimately needed at a school board trustee meeting um but it is very needed as alana said right. in the big picture in the education but in system, the education we absolutely need the history we need the history um of everything um because we are still writing that history and it hasn't yet um you know been uh been decided um you've heard a lot of what we think we really want to hear what you think um who are the moderate voices in Canada? Where can they be found? Um, what else do you have to think about with regards to uh, Canada's boycott, Israel's non-boycott? Um, and anything else that we discussed today, um, there are two ways that you can do that. You could just send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca. 
um, let us know what you thought. We'd love to hear your opinions. Um, but you can also join our Slack channel um, where we debate these opinions, where new ideas come up. Um, somebody just uh, brought up, I don't know, unicorns? Something Unicorns are Jewish now. It's a thing, apparently. Uh, anyways, um, I think it was the same Michael B. Anyways, um, whatever it is, please join the Slack channel. There's a lot of discussion going on. It's called The Frozen Chosen. Send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca to ask us to join the Slack channel. We'll put you in there and then you can have a be part of the rollicking discussion that is the Frozen Chosen channel on Slack. Now it's time for our Nachos of the Week, where we um, talk about things that made us feel good about ourselves um, and Canada and all things good and Jewish um, in Canada today. Alana, what's your Nachos? So I went to my favorite bookstore in Toronto, uh, BMB, which is a series of used bookstores in the city uh, that are extremely good quality. And um, because of this podcast, I feel like I am just always attracting Jewish things into my life without even seeking them out. And the first book that caught my eye had this nice cover. And uh, it had a, an author that sounded Jewish, but I wasn't sure. And then I picked it up. And indeed, it was a Jewish book. It is not Canadian, but nevertheless. Uh, the book is called Tell Me How This Ends Well. And it's by David Samuel Levinson. And uh, when you open the front cover... The first little tagline is, why is tonight different from all other nights? Tonight, we kill dad. Um, on... <laughs> uh, as you can tell, it is a dark comedy. I love dark comedy. And I was like, wow, a Jewish dark comedy book. This is exactly what I need in my life to get back into fiction. Um, when I do read fiction, I tend to read a lot of things that are comedic. And uh, the book is described as an ambitious, gripping, darkly funny family drama about the reckoning of three adult siblings with their profoundly flawed parents set during Passover in a near-future America rife with anti-Semitism and terror from an award-winning short story writer. So I'll let like, you know if it's good. I just picked this up. I feel like mm. when you say Jewish comedy and fiction um, in a novel, dark it just automatically comes with it. You don't have to like, oh, add 100%. that in. Oh, 100%. That's the best part. I'm happy to know that there are still bookstores in Toronto and they haven't all been bulldozed by high-rise condominiums. <laughs> Honestly, fair point. Fair point. Fair awesome. point, David. David, what's your nachas? My nachas for the week goes to Calgary Beth Tzedek Congregation in association with the Jewish Historical Society of Alberta. They're putting together two online events uh, with Harry Sanders, who is doing sort of a like um, a Calgary uh, street walk for 2021. We have a street that used to be called Reinach Avenue, which is now 4th Avenue South, which is uh, likely one of the only roads in Calgary's history with a Jewish namesake itself. So tonight, December 9th, 7 p.m., Calgary, Alberta time, as well as January 19th, all via Zoom at 7 p.m. too. You can find out more information if you want to attend this Jewish online um, uh, street walk at info at bethtzedek.ca. That's info at B-E. T-H-T-Z-E-D-E-C dot C-A. I hope to see you there, folks. My nachas is that uh, there was a rare moment of bipartisanship in uh, the government this week. Um, Bill C-4 was passed. It was uh, initially an idea that was brought up earlier on in the year. It died because of the, uh, the dissolution of parliament and uh, the um, uh, and therefore all bills that have not yet passed have to get restarted all over again. Um, but it is a bill that outlaws conversion therapy in Canada. It's an issue that I think is very important especially to the Jewish community, um, because there are still many, many Jews that 
um, are proponents of conversion therapy that think that uh, by going to some sort of a th conversion program, you can change yourself from being gay to being straight. Um, it is a very evil and very destructive force um, to many, many people. It has led to Amen. so many um, problems for so many youth that are struggling with this issue and think that they can change themselves um, by going to these types of programs. It is uh, horrible and evil and bad, and we should not have this anywhere. Um, but um, in a rare moment of bipartisanship, um, we had a lot of conservatives and a lot of liberals coming together to pass this law. Um, our very own Melissa Lanceman was one of the votes um, on the conservative side um, to uh, pass this bill. And so a big shout out and a big nachas to her for that. Um, and um, I'm glad that we are moving in the right direction in Canada. Here, here. Thank you for listening to Mojur Chai for the week of Friday, December 10th, Shabbat Vayigash. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes and our new page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. <laughs>